what I believe was the title of two separate essays by the philosopher Bertrand Russell and the novelist E.M. Forster in the early 20th century. These two humanist activists set out their approach to life, their fundamental worldview, in a way that was accessible to all. I'm Andrew Copson, Chief Exec of Humanists UK, and in this podcast I'm talking to humanists today about what they believe, to understand more about the values, convictions and opinions they live by. Joan Bakewell is a journalist, television presenter and Labour Party peer. She began her career at the BBC in the 1960s, presenting a number of programmes such as Late Night Lineup and Taboo. She's written widely for The Independent, The Times and The Guardian, mostly on issues related to society, culture and politics. In 2008, she was appointed as a voice for older people by the UK government and as a life peer in 2010. And last but not least, she's the co-chair of the all-party parliamentary humanist group and a patron of Humanist UK. Joan, thank you for joining us. I'm pleased to be here. This is a little bit intimidating, actually, as interviews go, because this is a podcast called What I Believe, and you, of course, presented a series for the BBC for a long time, very similar, called Belief. Called Belief, called belief and it went on for about 10 years. Yeah. Uh, obviously, it wasn't on every week, but I did interview about 50 people about what they, uh, what they believed. And I remember saying, and I perhaps it, the same holds true to this, um, that it was no good their talk, agreeing to talk to me unless they were prepared to be totally honest and more than that to dig deep into their own feelings and knowledge self-knowledge and so they did agree to that before we actually embarked on the recordings and how did you tend to open up the discussions with your well I did come to find that a lot of people's held beliefs as of today was based on their background you can't get away from your background you are shaped by the culture and your family life Um, particularly if it has been a happy one because then you draw on it without any reservation. If it's been unhappy, you often rebel against it, which is to say, of course, is just as influential as if you were happy with it. And so let's start there with you. (laughs) I grew up in Stockport and I grew up in a very conventional lower middle class family, Um, very uh, eager to conform to the values of the time. We belonged to a church in the sense it was a nominal, uh, the name was on the church register as it were, but my parents weren't particularly keen to go to church. We went on special days, high days and holidays and we went at Christmas and we knew all the hymns and we knew most of the prayers and I was um, confirmed at the church of St Thomas. St Thomas's, which was nearby, which was the church where I would subsequently get married. So I grew up accepting and believing the Anglican Christian story. There was no reason to challenge it. It was perfectly acceptable. A lot of it was very charming (laughs) to a child with angels and nice disciples. Nobody seemed to do anything wrong except the wicked people who you were meant to hate whom God took a revenge on. So it all seemed quite satisfactory and a rather nice tale. Well, then I, as I grew up, I did begin to question things because, you know, curiosity makes you wonder why everybody believes this. And I I enrolled for confirmation. We had to have classes to instruct us for the confirmation 
exchanges of prayers and answers that would be presided over by a bishop. And I remember as we finished one session, which had been a little bit confusing about spirituality, I do remember saying to the person instructing us, how do we know any of this is true? And there was a sort of quiet gasp among the other <laughs> children because I was stepping outside accepted behaviour and nobody did ask that kind of thing. And I think one of the answers was the weight of tradition. How could it not be true if 2,000 years had not demonstrated that its survival power verified its, its the actual truth of the message? Mm. And I took that in with a certain reservation and think, hmm, is that what it takes? Uh, and then, of course, they went on about the values that we'd learnt through it and the values which, of course, I still share because those values are very universal. Yeah. And how that was important. But we didn't. nobody had attempted to discuss whether Christ rose from the dead, mm. subject that always fascinated me, and I've done programmes about it since, and still... I'm fascinated um, about the archaeology of it because they, the people have found... They're always trying to look for things. things, yeah, yeah. So, and that was when I was, I suppose, 14, 15, and then I went to university, at which point I collided with people of all sorts of different faiths and indeed a good deal of scepticism on everybody's part. And that was very good for me because I was studying economics and then I studied history and I studied history under Eric Hobsbawm oh, right. who was a distinguished Marxist and very brilliant mind and he didn't bring his Marxism directly to bear on uh, my, my tuition but I always remember him saying whenever I made some statement he'd say and what is your evidence for that statement what, what is this based on what are you going to offer up in your essay or your um, account as a justification for making such a remark. Mm. And that went home very much that, in fact, when I was moving among people of ideas and inter intelligence and intellectual status, one of the things they acknowledged was the importance of evidence. And I, that started to you know, impinge on my rather parochial set of beliefs. And I started asking around for evidence and I never found satisfactory answers. I still quite like rooting around in the evidence. I still like, as it were, the, the Bible story. And I'm always intrigued when they say they found the crucifix on which Paul was oh, yes. crucified, whatever yeah, yeah. it is. Any piece of anything that That's they right. find. That's yeah. right. I find all that very interesting. But right. of course it, and of course it is a marvellous story. And I find you know, the, the succession of popes and the powers that they've exercised, uh, the naughty popes and the sublime popes. I mean, outstanding popes of different kinds. I find that very interesting. But I've, uh, I find it interesting from a secular point of view. They are powerful people, always men, of course, mm. exercising political control over a whole swathe of followers. Well, let's go back then to, you say oh, your beliefs were still quite parochial when you were at university, but... You were the child who asked the question in that class, and the other ch children gasped. You know, why do you think you were the child who asked the question? Where did that? Well, come I was from? stepping out of line. I mean, you were meant in. That I was your way, up, was it? I grew up at a time when um, you were taught to have respect for your elders and not to speak out of turn, not to um, upset anybody by the things you said. So, I mean, I was brought up to be amazingly conventional and conformist. 
I've had trouble rebelling against it ever since. But you did, you asked that question. Why do you think you asked that question? Was that, what was it, the spirit of curiosity or already a willingness to challenge? Yes, I think the spirit of curiosity is very strong in me, even now. I mean, I find I suddenly want to know about subjects that are completely alien to me. I quite like to know um, how an aeroplane engine works or how a chemical reaction functions. I don't know any of these things. But I do find it worth asking, why is that so? And how does that come about? And of course, I apply that in my politics as well as in my terms of my ideas and my ideology. Yeah, well, you're, you've, you've had such a broad range of themes in your career in broadcasting, didn't you? It, it seems to me you were always looking at something new and taking on a topic where you didn't necessarily know anything. And that's quite valuable, I suppose, in a broadcaster because you're going on the same journey as your viewer or listener. Yes, that's very very true. Um, it is useful in a broadcaster because you ask a question from genuine interest rather than because some producer has drawn up a list of questions. I've never obeyed the uh, list of questions and I've always gone meandering off into interesting avenues of my own concern. And and people enjoy that and as you know people respond to genuine interest and I've learned a lot of different things along the way. I've accumulated a lot of people's opinions into my own background and begun to look at um, people of ideas with enormous respect because over those years when I did the series called Belief I met really intelligent people who gave a very brilliant exposition of what it is they believed whether they were Jews or Muslims um, and uh, Hindus all sorts of people, and atheists, and people with strange beliefs. I, I interviewed a witch, and the programme was a little bit exercised as to whether we should include a witch in a programme that was run by the religious department. <laughs> we'll um, come on to the BBC in a bit. <laughs> but, the, um, but the point is, she came along to talk about being a witch, and we were all absolutely fascinated. We were all totally fascinated. She took it very seriously. She spoke about how she wasn't at all unique. It was quite a widespread shared set of beliefs. It operated um, in her life. It helped guide her and uh, her beliefs, her relationships. And we afterwards we said, well, shame on us for being so sneery as to think it wasn't worth talking about. It was really worth talking about. Hmm. The world of ideas that you encountered at university you, you you made it sound as if that was very different from the sort of family that you'd grown up in and their and their own background um and that obviously sounds like that's true but i remember seeing you on a program a few years ago about grammar schools um which was very personally interesting to me because my uh, background is exactly the same you know i came from a family with no educational background and then was suddenly moved into this you know world that was totally different and valued it a lot um and so i thought it might be interesting to, to think a little bit about how that had shaped your beliefs and values because it seemed at the time when I saw that program to have shaped you quite profoundly. Um, it was very different from your home background I think, that school background that you had. Yes, my school background was a, an achievement for my parents who schooled me to get through the 11 plus. They were very eager I should 
have a better opportunity in life than they did. That was why they were interested in opportunity in life, really. Absolutely. I mean, both my grandparents, both my grandfathers were factory workers. One worked in a brewery and the other was an iron turner, it said on his death certificate. So, um, So they were obviously people who used their hands and their strength to earn their money. Now, their children had quite substantial brains and didn't want to belong to that kind of world. They'd grown up in terrace houses in central Manchester, very poor, but, but you know, wholesome run families. And they wanted to get on in the world and they'd managed to get on quite a lot. My father became a professional engineer, qualified engineer um, of design, designing um, equipment and furniture. Um, my father designed uh, silos for the handling of wheat from cargo ships to the shore. There's great silos mm. that they used to have. Well, he was part of the company that designed those. And my mother was a tracer. Now, she, there was a time before any kind of photostatting happened where you had women who cop is always women, who copied the very exact designs from, from Brunel's day onwards. Mm. And they were called tracers. They used tracing paper. And my mother um, had a very good job there. But there was a limited um, a hierarchy of promotion and she wasn't eligible because she was a woman for promotion. So she harboured a good deal of resentment um, and wanted to inject in me the opportunities she felt she'd missed. My father had taken the opportunities and he wanted to see me have more. Mm. So I had the backing of their enthusiasm to see me through. When I went to Cambridge, I took on a whole different set of values which began to ch- challenge theirs. And what you got, of course, what you often get is the children challenging the parents who have bestowed the benefits of education on them, only for them to stand up and say, well, now I'm getting educated. I don't think your <laughs> values are right. So that was quite tense, my teenage years, my later years. But you didn't um, reject all those values. I think they were a Labour household. Obviously, you've turned out to be a Labour peer. You see, in the post-war generation and the enthusiasm for the Labour government of 1945, everyone was for what they were doing. They created the welfare state. We had free medicine for the first time. Hard to imagine there not being a National Health Service. So everyone was uh, enormously in favour of them. As we moved on through the decades, my father became much more right-wing and felt that um, they'd betrayed the early promise, etc., in the way that you'll find people do. Uh, I joined the Labour Party at Cambridge and I felt that the Labour Party's ideology, which was a sense of social justice and to help those who couldn't help themselves, to look after the weak and the poor and to provide everyone with um, a house, an income, and health and security. Those seemed to me absolutely basic to society, and it seemed to me that the Labour Party was more on that agenda than any other. In the 60s um, and onwards, when your career in broadcasting was developing, you played quite an important role um, in uh, building a more, I think we could say, humanistic approach to religion and ethics type broadcasting. what was it that motivated that? I mean, if, if, if as you've said, the, the basis of your own values in your personal development, at least, was some Christian values, where did the, the non-religious aspect come in? Oh, I don't think I should be too uh, um, pr- proud or boastful about that. Um, I took to it because they offered me the work. 
it offered me a, a job to work in programs that were serious-minded programs about what people believed. Would I like to do it? Yes, I like to do it. Simply as a journalist being offered a job. And the more I did it, of course, the more I realised that it chimed with my interest in ideas in general mm. um, and my impulse to challenge everything anyway. So it suited me. It suited me. And that was an accident. It wasn't a particularly high-profile area of broadcasting. The relig- there was a religious department, it was called then. It's not called the religious department no. anymore. Um, but they did have uh, a lot of people who were ordained, all men, of course. Uh, and they had women who knew, had studied theology, but were not eligible to be ordained. And they were interested in beliefs, but basically steeped in in the Christian theology and the theology of the Protestant church. And that was fine because I knew enough and I didn't feel I was betraying anything to do the programme because I hadn't really asserted my independence from the church. I mean, you don't formally leave the church. There isn't a ceremony in which you are stripped of your um, confirmation. (laughs) So I think I've sometimes... In the middle years of my life, I call myself the non-practicing, non-observing member of the Church of England. So, um, so I always feel that I, I get on quite well in the bishops in the House of Lords. And indeed, when I, um, when I moved a debate not long ago about um, gen- genetic engineering, and there was a whole lot of development happening at that time, and I wanted to get, and I proposed the debate, I got the space, and then I wanted to round up people who would come and speak. And I went and knocked on the bishop's door, not something you'd normally do, and said, you know, I, I'd, like to, I'd like the bishops to know that this debate was going forward under my name. And I would very much like if they would come and speak. Would they find someone to come and join in that debate? Because, I mean, I don't feel myself as a humanist cut off from the beliefs that people have in different religions. Because I feel and I have an understanding of what that is because of their aspirations, their high ideals, whatever they may be, their attempts to improve humanity's uh, way of life, their championing of the poor and the neglected. So I, I don't feel opposed to them, except I always have to make clear to them that I don't hold their beliefs in a whole set of supernatural happenings and events and possibilities i don't share that doesn't mean we don't have a lot in common well that sounds like a conviction in itself a belief on your part um you think a a large part of the religions and philosophers of the world is an overlapping area of common values it's more to do with the the pattern of behavior that they set out i mean if you look at islam the the four duties of a, a muslim they're very honorable i mean the whole business of giving alms for example which is an obligation of taking in the stranger. Mm. It's an obligation. That seemed to me, and those are sort of eternal ver- values that are nothing to do with the actual n- nature of the person who founded the religion or the nature of their deity. Yeah, so. you find them everywhere in human societies. Yes, so, yeah, yeah. And that doesn't worry me. I mean, I don't feel implacably. I'm not. I know, I know Richard Dawkins sometimes rail, well, often rails against <laughs> observed religion, and I've got a lot against their, you know, accumulated wealth and their um, fancy behaviour. But, but instinctively, I feel sympathy for people who have given some thought to humanity's behaviour and misbehaviour. You took on. Um labour values of the sort that you've described at university and obviously now you're involved in politics and when you were talking about the sort of 
Attlyite, Bevanite vision of society that you uh, endorsed. Um, it sounded as if the, that idea of progress was something that you were quite committed to, the idea that it's possible that it can happen. One of the lecturers at Cambridge was Herbert Butterfield. His book prevailed very much in those days, uh, and it dismantled the idea of the liberal progression, that we are on some path of betterment automatically that will come about through history. Um, and then, of course, we went to um, the fall of the Soviet Union and the, is it Fukuyama who Fukuyama wrote the book on the end of history, yeah. as though we had attained some desired end product. And, of course, then we proved that we hadn't. Uh, so I I grew to realise that there wasn't such a thing as progress, although it was part of an, a belief system that you were you went through as you were a child in 40s and 50s England, I mean, Britain forever, we were at the forefront of all the progress that was to be made in human ideas and behaviour, and we took those ideas and forced them on a lot of other countries that didn't belong to us. So they were, it was a flawed idea, but nonetheless it was an aspiration, and I had to set that aside and say no human society is organised in multiple in a multitude of ways, many of which are self-contradictory, and you have to find your way through, literally on an ad hoc basis. I mean, do you think this is good or that is good? What about Belarus? What do you think of America? Um, you know, what, you have to solve each one to your own satisfaction, though the world might not listen. It's worth listening to your own head, I think. Did you have a sense of loss giving up the idea of progress? Did you still feel that during the 60s and the 70s, that progress was happening and was real, or...? Um, no, I think I lost then. it much earlier. Oh, I really? do remember, I think it was probably in my first year at university, when, first of all, I lost the sense that there was anybody out there looking after me, that there was no Christ. I didn't feel that, you know, underneath are the everlasting arms, that I was cradled in such a set of beliefs by someone who was looking after me. And I remember feeling, and they're not. And I suffered that as a great sense of loss. Mm. Um, I'd come to the decision, and then I had to go into my life without this comfort. And I remember the, how, how frail I felt and how vulnerable without this sense of comfort supporting me. So that went, and, um, and then I, then I st study history, and you learn that progress doesn't go as we want it to do. We all have a sense of progress, and I do believe in aspiring to making the world a better place and I still hold to that today, but it isn't surprising that empires come and go, and we're now seeing the decline to some extent of the West, and we're seeing the rise of the East, and, and you know, that is how human society swings one way and another, different groups, different power brokers, what we're not sure what's going on in Russia, but it's not particularly wholesome. <laughs> um, different societies rise and fall, and their people go with them, or they try to change it or direct it. That's why history never ceases to be fascinating. It sounds like you took yourself out of the Christian story and sort of reinserted yourself into the big human story with curiosity and looking for ideas and so on. Is that about right? Yes, I think that's true. I didn't know it was called humanism at the time. No. <laughs> and indeed, when I speak to people who say to me, humanism, what, the, what on earth is humanism exactly? And I set out what it is and they said, oh, well, that's what I am. So there yeah, are a lot, happens of, a lot yes. lot of people walking this planet who are behaving, I'm glad to say, in accordance with humanist beliefs without actually giving it that name. Um, recently, 
it's for quite some time actually you've become uh, quite an advocate for older people um, and so I think it would be remiss not to explore that a little bit um, this is a growing idea obviously in our society that uh, certain beliefs about older age what it is what it can be what it means and so on um, I mean you'll, you you know because I can see from just the books that you have around from Marcus Aurelius to, to anybody else that many people have thought about old age and the nature of things and so on um, but you've you've committed yourself really specifically to the idea that older people's contributions need to be valued. Yes, I did this at the invitation of Harriet Harman when the Equality Bill came up before Parliament. And she felt that the Equality Bill, which covered gender, uh, religion, sexual orientation and so on, should include ageism. And it hadn't been put into the bill at that time. And she wanted someone to speak up in public whenever they got the opportunity about the problems of being old, but the virtues of being old, and the nature of being old. And she asked if I'd do it as a sort of informal ambassador, and I agreed. And so I did start visiting places. Um, it was made public that I was this held this role. A lot of people wrote to me about their dilemmas. I mean, one of the dilemmas that's come to the fore with the lockdown is the absence of public toilets. This is not a matter of belief. The absence of public toilets for older people is a really serious dilemma. It means that they don't like to go out for longer than two hours. Yeah. So um, they brought me those kind of problems, but they also brought me problems of bereavement, sadness, loneliness. And of course, on the basis of that, the BBC then asked me to present a series of programmes called We Need to Talk About Death. And I hadn't done much talking about death, uh, hadn't done much thinking about it, and I think there's a sense in which I'm still not completely confronting it. What is interesting is that mo uh, many, many, many of my generation have died, many of my friends, and and they're gone. There's a there's vacancy there where there used to be a multitude of friends. So where have they gone? Well, of course, I believe that death is the end. So you, the sense of loss is very great. You don't think, well, one day we'll all be together again. It's not going to be like that. So that's harder to reconcile than perhaps grief in which you feel one day we will be reunited. And I think that has to be confronted. And I, as I get older, I'm obviously getting closer to my own death. And I've thought about it and I've made all the technical provisions that you need to, my will and statements about this and that, about do not resuscitate, things like that. I'm enormously in favour of assisted dying. I belong to the campaigns that um, wanted the law changed to make it allowable. I, um, I don't actually think about my own dying because in the course of doing the programmes I learnt that one of the things that people fear is not death, it's the getting there. Mm. I think one of the really frightening things, though, philosophically, is ceasing to exist. I'm sure that's why people invented the afterlife, because the concept of ceasing to exist is really terrifying. Mm. It's a very frightening concept. And Do you, Does it frighten you? Well, I, I think I avoid directly confronting it, because I do know that... Um, it alarmed people like Philip Larkin, for example, oh, was yes. haunted well, by yeah, it yeah, yeah. and wrote the wonderful poem O Bard about yeah, it. Yeah. Kingsley Amis was just the same. I knew Kingsley Amis, who just lived around the corner, and he was he was panicked by the thought of it. I don't panic 
But I sort of think, I refuse to go there. I'm not going to let myself be thrown into any kind of uh, distress about it because one, it's unavoidable, and two, there'll be time enough within the first, the, the final hours to think about anything distressing about it. And I talked to my children about going and what I want at my funeral and all the sorts of paraphernalia about death itself. And that's as close as I think I'm willing to go. In fact, I think it's hard to go much further, really, without getting deeply depressed or strange. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it's obviously it's a, it's a humanist commonplace almost that you confront death, accept death, and then forget forget about it and move on with, with life. I mean, we've all, the, the difference now, of course, compared with Marcus Aurelius, is that most of us have been under a general anaesthetic of some kind, so we know what it's like, actually, which is nothing at all. That's right. <laughs> you know? they, they put you to sleep, which yeah. is what probably taking the drugs that they give you as painkillers amounts to. And I've been at the deathbeds of several people. When my father was dying, he clearly was um, very ill from cancer and very uncomfortable and hadn't got long to go. And he knew that and I knew that. But the actual dying, we couldn't get over the line, as it were. And I remember holding him. He was sort of coughing and ill, Ill and sort of saying, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And I remember just holding him in my arms and saying, you can go now. I'm here. I'm with you. I'm not going away. You can go now. And he died within 24 hours. And I think in a way I gave him permission. Mm. I think he wanted the people he loved and he left behind to know that it was all right to go. And I think quite a number of people do that. If somebody is, um, I don't know, waiting for something to happen or I've known that happen over someone who was getting married and the father of the bride struggled to stay alive yes. until after the wedding yeah, was yeah. over and then and then was yeah I complete. believe that happens quite often yeah. so I think that we can we do intervene in ways that we probably don't know yet because we haven't been there in how it comes about it might be interesting <laughs> it rouses my curiosity <laughs> yeah it might be so what were you left with any other convictions from all that work about death, those programmes that you made about death? I mean, you say um, grieving for loss and so on, but do you, are you reconciled in any additional way to grief and loss? Not, not, not talking about your own death now, but the deaths of other people. No, I, I, I mean, I think it's a terrible thing to happen. It's happened to some friends of mine, one or two, if your children die before you do. And that has happened on several occasions. Uh, my friends have dealt with it in their own way, don't speak of it, I'm not that close to them to speak of it. Um, and you have to be stoic about it, but it seems to me the most terrible loss of all, most terrible loss. And I think that's, that's really hard to deal with, because of course, it's not the order of things. You know, people are meant to go, meant, where does that come from? On the whole, behaviours are such that older generations die first. And so, the, and particularly, you know, the death of a small child is just unbelievably terrible, which is why when there's a small child who's drowned on a beach, the whole world is distressed by it. 
I suppose that's true, isn't it? I mean, actually, I suppose in history, it's, it's actually a function of modern societies that people die in generational order, because in history, mothers must have lost a lot of children for, yeah, oh, yes. in war or in, in infancy and so on. Yes, so my grandmother had eight children, right. one died, and it was quite common to, to lose several, which mm. is why they had so many, mm. because they depended on them, and, and poor old Queen Anne lost oh, about yeah. several. Oh, so many, yeah, 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 that's right. Can we talk about beauty? Yeah, absolutely. Poetry is one of the really rich um, elements of life which we can all reach, which reaches all of us. And perhaps we neglect, really, because we thought we had to learn it at school, I had to learn it by Mm. rote, which, of course, does more to turn you off than anything. But still comes back to me, (laughs) the poems I did learn, and I found that my son, too, had done that. And we were saying, oh, did you learn this one? Did you learn that Ozymandias? Yeah, we all learned that, yeah. (laughs) I I, I use that, that, that Ozymandias, in my head. So often, I mean, at the moment, with the vanity of all sorts of politicians and governments, it's, for, it's at the forefront of your mind all the time. But you're right, those poems that you learn when you're younger, they give you a framework to make meaning out of all sorts of events. They do. That, that I'm happen. also very fond of Kavafi, mm-hmm. and I think he's one, you know, we're waiting for the barbarians and poems like yeah, that. Very yeah. popular. I've got books, I've got anthologies of popular poetry, and, um, I, and they're very useful because it's a different poet on every page. So, you, you know, so you choose where you want to be at a particular time and um, there's a great reward to be had there. I'm, glad, I'm so glad you brought this up because someone, you know, we often get letters at Humans UK saying what are you going to do about um, the, the Bibles, you know, that get put in hotel rooms and instead of these Bibles you should have a campaign to put in some sort of science books in, in, in hotel rooms and I always think no that's not, we should, be, we should be putting books of poetry into hotel rooms, that's the... Um, Equivalent. I'm glad you raised the arts because quite often um, uh, people forget that uh, you know they associate a humanist view with the sciences and maybe yes also with uh, with anthropology and looking at human societies. But it's the arts as well where humanists have made a lot of contributions. And you know the arts aren't just the icing on the cake either. They're part of life. They're Absolutely. How we make sense. And of I do think uh, I do think you know the great masterpieces of art by what, against what background what. The masterpieces of art, against whatever background they've been painted, you know, altarpieces, churches, um, saints, um, crucifixion's a bit brutal, but I mean, nonetheless, the sublime nature of the mother of Christ and the loss of her son, that's a human situation. Great art to look at is deeply moving and just sitting, contemplating it doesn't mean that you accept the, the rigors of a you know, an established church. It just means you can submit your sensibilities to human existence, because that's what's conveyed by the greatest artist. And whether it, you know, it might well be a lily pond, or it might be a tree, and or it might be a view of the sea. These are wonderful experiences of being in the reality of the uh, of the world that painting brings home to you. Mm. Um. I think it would be remiss not to say something about uh, the... I mean, you say it was just uh, that it was a job and it was work and someone offered you and you did it, but I think there must be more to it than that. I think you must have convictions about broadcasting, about public broadcasting, why you did the programmes that you did. You know, is, is there anything, looking back on that, that you would say united the work that you yes, did? Yes, looking back, I can see that the programmes I chose to do, and I've lived my life as a freelance, I've not been on the payroll of any um, 
Broadcasting Authority. I worked for the BBC a lot, and I worked for Granada a lot too in the past. What has united them is the fact that I like ideas, and I like to tangle with ideas, and I like to be challenged by them, and I like to share discussion of them with people. I see that now. I probably have turned down the more frivolous things that have been offered me and forgotten about them. I remember one or two, which is so silly, it's not worth remembering. Um, <laughs> But I would turn those down because I did like something that gave me a bit of, you know, a bit of intellectual grit to get on with. And Heart of the Matter was a classic case of that. That was literally go out and help people make moral decisions for themselves. That was a really mm. important... And pushing boundaries as well. I mean, that was pushing boundaries. And Absolutely. a lot of your programmes, like the one about sex, I remember when I was a teenager, I saw you, the one about sex. I remember looking it up online in the Daily Mail, Daily Mail article and it said, Miss Bakewell watches people having sex. <laughs> they were quite shocked by it. But, but, even... then, but I did a programme with, with women who wanted to be priests before right. they could yeah. be priests. Yeah. I did women a programme with um, gay men who wanted to become priests who were not allowed to become priests. And you know, that was, this was all in the 90s when it was all changing and the mm. law, of course, has now changed. Uh, and I like to feel that we had a little part in that. We did things which needed... The attention of the public conscience, and that was worth doing. We moved on from different topic to different topic. We went to um, Yugoslavia, as it was called, after the war there, to discuss how could you decide which side was wrong and which side was right. What did that mean? The intervention of the United Nations and so on. So we posed moral dilemmas. I never came down on one side or the other. It was always the refrain of the program. So. On the one hand, this, and on the other hand, that. That's the heart of the dilemma. That was the refrain of the programme, and I, I never took sides. And people would say to me when afterwards, which, what side were you on? And I would always think that, that I'd been a good broadcaster and that I hadn't yeah. revealed my own commitments, whether if they were there, strong enough, I hadn't revealed them, because that was to make people think. Yeah. Well, that in itself is being an agent of change, isn't it? It is, yes. And it's was really. that a moral commitment? You wanted people to think, think oh, about oh, these very, things? Well, I wanted... I often didn't know the answers to these questions myself, you see, so I set them out um, in terms... I went seeking the answers and I very often found them myself, for myself, but I also wanted people to think about them from scratch for themselves. Uh, I remember we did a programme about female genital mutilation. Nobody knew what it was in those days. I mean, in British society, it was hardly heard of. Uh, and we had to explain what it was, which was a bit eye-popping. Um, and then we also, in that programme, had to find someone to defend it, I remember. And I do remember it was the novelist, the African novelist, uh, Buchi Mcheta, who is Nigerian. And she said to me, get out of my culture leave my culture alone it's colonialism that you should come telling me how my people should behave joan bakewell a life of ideas a life of finding things out the joy of curiosity thank you for telling us what you believe thank you very much i enjoyed our conversation that was joan bakewell telling us about her life and her outlook on the world as a humanist for the what i believe podcast what I Believe is a weekly podcast from Humanist UK, and this was the third episode of the second season. We'll be releasing new episodes every Thursday. If you'd like to support the podcast or find out more about humanism, Humanist UK, or the work that we do, you can find out more at the Humanist UK website, humanists.uk. And do please consider joining as a member or supporter. If you're really interested in humanism, you can also buy the Sunday Times bestseller, The Little Book of Humanism, available now at all good retailers. Mm-hmm.